0: Story, etc.
1: So I tend to think of science fiction as older than many critics and I think it has a longer pedigree and I think it's interested in some of the same things as fantasy but it goes about it in a completely different way so that It's a material sublime, what science fiction fans sometimes call a sense of wonder, that mind-blowing thing where you think just how enormous the universe is, how prodigious, how small we are by comparison.
2: That was Adam Roberts from an interview coming up later in our programme. This is Story Etc. I'm Tom Crowley. I'm speaking here in the People's Republic of London shortly after an astonishing general election which has left the country very uncertain of its future. One thing we do know for sure is that Brexit means Brexit, whatever that means. There are many reasons to be concerned about Britain's departure from the European Union, but one of the most pressing is the possible separation of our country from European advancements in scientific research and funding for the sciences. But it's not just our concern. The for now President of the United States recently announced that his country was pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, going against the wisdom of countless experts the world over. In a world which purports to have had enough of experts, can science fiction, and indeed scientific fiction, save us? This month on Story Etc, we explore the ways in which science affects fiction, how fiction has inspired scientists, and what we can expect from the future of sci-fi itself. So, science on a fiction-based podcast. How do we square that?
3: Going into this, I was interested in the sort of bisection of the genre, which is the idea of sort of science fiction in the classic sense of World creation, or or something like that, and then writing that is maybe more inspired by science in a in a lateral way, Um, and that was something I was quite interested to explore because I think they both have huge
4: ramifications for fiction. Um, For me, it was more along the lines of um, how an author deals with dealing with science um, if they're writing a piece of fiction. Um, A lot of the interviews we we've done have stemmed from working with fact. Um, And it's quite interesting to see um, and hear how worlds are created when you still have to remain correct and still remain uh, applicable and believable and entirely factually accurate to the people who are listening and build on that to something which is so unbelievable, whether that's scientific fact um, or whether it's science fiction, as we know.
2: Well, I love uh, sci-fi in the classical sense. And it's a strange sliding scale between uh, its base in reality or complete unbelievability. how much goes into that. And I always find that the stuff that appeals most to me is the stuff that takes a sort of convincing extreme from a, from an already existent uh, scientific discovery or, or uh, discipline and takes that to its logical conclusion or to a, a convincing extreme, uh, but still retains a very human in a sort of very mundane sense reaction to that.
4: Would it be going out on a limb to ask you your favorite sci-fi book?
2: Favourite sci-fi book? uh oh, Scanner Darkly is a perennial classic. Uh, a lot of the more fantastical sci-fi love as well. The uh, Callahan stories by Spider Robinson are a perennial favourite. Uh, oh, anything by Philip K. Dick is wonderful.
4: I'm going to put Nightwatch by Pratchett in there. That's good, that's a good sci-fi novel. Um, for the crime that we can talk about science fiction without mentioning Pratchett. Especially about mundane humanity, I think he needs to be...
2: That's true, but he's almost a sort of... He's an alternate past uh science he fiction is. writer he he writes from a a previous era in history and then extrapolates their science in a different way yeah but with the hindsight of
4: modern having life. lived modern
2: life yeah, yeah.
4: but it, yeah again it's it's taking science on a completely different tangent and working it up into a world that we don't know
2: yeah no one here is saying terry pratchett isn't an excellent sci-fi oh, author, no. by the way no so don't good feel under attack heavens
4: no good heavens no, <laughs> good heavens, no.
2: To begin our exploration of the marriage of science and fiction, Eleanor Rushton has looked all the way back to the 17th century to investigate Margaret Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle upon Tyne who died in 1673. Cavendish was an aristocrat, a poet, a scientist, and a writer, whose novel The Blazing World is often cited as one of the earliest examples of what we now know as science fiction. Eleanor sat down with academic Olivia Smith to discuss what made Margaret Cavendish's work so significant. The readings of Cavendish's work, which you'll hear in the following feature, are read by actor Olivia O'Nyahara, who you might remember from our very first episode.
5: Hi, I'm Olivia Smith. I'm a Wellcome Trust Research Fellow at the University of Oxford in the Faculty of English, but I'm working on the ways that science writing and literary writing overlap. So we're here today for our science episode to talk about Margaret
3: Cavendish. So I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a little bit about... Who she was and what
5: she is. Yeah, so Margaret Cavendish was an extremely exciting writer who lived in the 17th century and she wrote across a great sort of variety of genres, works of poetry, some of her poetry is about atoms and the world is composed of an atomic structure, she wrote drama, prose, letters to sort of imaginary female recipients, scientific observations and what people think of as being a kind of type of science fiction, her, her blazing world. I have heard that
0: a gentleman in Italy fancied he had so good a microscope that he could see atoms through it, and could also perceive the plague, which he affirmed to be a swarm of living animals as little as atoms, which entered into men's bodies through their mouths, nostrils, ears, etc.,
3: So I wanted to ask you first of all about the approaches that Margaret Cavendish took towards science writing, namely the observations on natural philosophy that she produced and then her famous blazing
5: world. In 1666, Cavendish published one book that contained these two separate pieces of writing which really highlight the sort of breadth the generic experiments she was making. So in this one book object, you've got observations upon experimental philosophy to which is added the description of a new blazing world. And these are sort of two separate texts, but that sit originally in the same publication. And the first, the observations upon experimental philosophy, is a sort of direct response to the new experimental philosophy, uh, the sort of experimental science that had been set up when Charles II had started the, the Royal Society. Um, which capitalised on a sort of informal experimental culture that had been taking place in the sort of 1650s, in the interregnum and in the Civil War before it. So the Royal Society had started up in 1660. We still now have it as one of, one of Britain's foremost sort of scientific institutions about people who wanted to do experiment based science, who wanted to observe things in nature. So we have people who are working with microscopes like Hooke people who work in sort of chemistry like Boyle, all meeting up here to come together to share their observations of, of science. And Cavendish, from the outside, writes her observations upon this new experimental philosophy. Of the eyes of flies.
0: I cannot wonder enough at the strange discovery made by the help of the microscope concerning the great number of eyes observed in flies, as that... For example, in a grey drone fly should be found clusters which contain about 14,000 eyes. But a greater wonder, it is to me, that man, with the twinkling of one eye, can observe so many in so small a creature. If it be not a deceit of the optic instrument, it may be, perhaps, that those little pearls or globes which were taken for eyes in the mentioned fly are only transparent knobs or glossy, shining, spherical parts of its body. There are many creatures that have such shining protuberances and globular parts, and those full of quick motion, which yet are not eyes. Truly, my reason can hardly be persuaded to believe that this artificial informer, I mean the microscope, should be so true as is generally thought. It is well known that if a figure be longer, broader, and bigger than its nature requires, it is not its natural figure. And therefore, those creatures or parts of creatures, which by art appear bigger than naturally they are, cannot be judged according to their natural figure, since they do not appear in their natural shape, but an artificial one, that is, in a shape or figure magnified by art and extended. And since man cannot judge otherwise of a figure than it appears, how shall the object be truly known? Wherefore, I can hardly believe the truth of this experiment concerning the numerous eyes of flies. They may have, as I said before, glossy and shining globular protuberances, but not so many eyes as, for example, bubbles of water, ice, as also blisters and watery pimples and hundreds the like are shining and transparent hemispheres, reflecting light, but yet not eyes. Nay, if flies should have so many numerous eyes... Why can they not see the approach of a spider until it be just at them? Also, how comes that sometimes they seem blind, so as one may take or kill them? And they cannot so much as perceive their enemy's approach? Surely, if they had 14,000 eyes, all this number would seem useless to them, since other creatures which have but two can make more advantage of those two eyes than they of their vast number.
5: She tackles all of the same topics as, as those that are occurring within the academy, like sort of microscopes, experiments on colour. She writes her views on them. She writes her sort of critique of their scientific methods, as it were. And this is really quite a sort of formal series of mini essays that sort of map on directly to the very, very first scientific topics that were being written about in this institutional manner.
0: A louse, by the help of a magnifying glass, appears like a lobster. The more the figure by art is magnified, the more it appears misshapen from the natural, in so much as each joint will appear as a diseased, swelled and tumid body, ready and ripe for incision.
5: This book, which is uh, Observations on Experimental Philosophy, containing all these quite straight uh, but very characterful and very forceful and very beautifully written critiques of the new science, that book finishes and then added to that is her description of the new blazing world, which is... A creative story, a completely different piece of writing, it has a completely different preface. So the observations on experimental philosophy have lots of letters in front of them talking about how they really are partaking in science current news really Um, and there's a preface to Cambridge University on the observations, uh, on her scientific observations, uh, saying that she's putting forward these, you know, a a serious sort of response to be added to the debates about how science should be conducted. At the beginning of the blazing world in, in the book There's a letter to the reader, um, and she says that she has joined a work of fancy to her serious philosophical contemplations. And she thinks of this as being, she says, a fiction of the mind, and a new world, but one that she's created, rather than the new worlds that people like Hooke were trying to discover through sort of microscopes, or that uh, astronomers were trying to discover through looking at the heavens, in which new worlds were being discovered that that were already there... Cavendish thinks of herself creating a new world, she's going to write a new world uh, out of her imagination. And so this is another way of of creating a new thing to see. But whereas she's quite critical of sort of microscopes and other scientific procedures as not really creating anything new to see, she obviously here is putting across her own attempt... At revealing or showing something new about the world, and she's going to do it through what we now call sort of creative literary writing.
0: I am not covetous, but as ambitious as ever any of my sex was, is, or can be, which makes that though I cannot be Henry V or Charles II, yet I endeavour to be Margaret I. And although I have neither power, time nor occasion to conquer the world as Alexander and Caesar did, yet rather than not to be mistress of one. Since fortune and the fates would give me none, I have made a world of my own, for which nobody, I hope, will blame me, since it is in everyone's power to do the like.
3: Could you talk a little bit about what Blazing World is like, because it's a very particular piece of science fiction, I think.
5: Blazing World is a, is a story, like a sort of mini-novel, um, very highly imaginative, containing lots of fantastical elements. So the two main female characters are both sort of versions of Cavendish herself, um, and the story tells of how a maiden is kidnapped and taken to sea, only to be shipwrecked by a storm, and then to sort of find, through the North Pole, a new world where she becomes Empress. And the Empress sets up her own fantastical royal society, based very obviously on... Charles II's Royal Society, uh, filled with different groups of scientists who are these sort of hybrid creatures, and um, they're, they're, they're half human and they're half something else. So having gone from uh, the first tract in the book, which is about, you know, a very obvious reflection on this society of, of all men who are set up to do the new science, in, in her second um, piece of writing, um, In The Blazing World, she creates this sort of fictional society presided over by the Empress of these hybrid different types of creature who are all responsible for a different sort of area of science. In light of that, in light of her sort of imagined answer
3: to the Royal Society, tell us a little bit about Margaret Cavendish's relationship with the real thing.
5: The Royal Society was composed totally of men, as it was until the mid-20th century. At this point, it's the very sort of beginning of the Royal Society, and so things are perhaps a little bit more flexible. Um, it's not entirely set in stone what the rules are. And Cavendish wants to visit the society, and they have a vote on it, and they're very divided, but in the end, she does end up visiting one of their meetings on the 30th of May, 1667. So this is a year after she's first published Blazing World and her observations, which many of them have read. She turns up there, and I can see in Pepys's diary, he talks about her coming, and he says that Several fine experiments were shown to her of colours, lodestones, microscopes, and of liquors, among others, of one that did, while she was there, turn a piece of roasted mutton into pure blood, which was very rare. And so... She went along and she saw all of the experiments that pertain to the the kind of experiments that she herself was critiquing and then sort of satirising. But we also can see from that how some of the experiments themselves are almost kind of fantastical at this point, that there was a liquor that could turn a piece of roasted mutton into pure blood. You know, the, the very things that people are looking at are to our ears today, perhaps of a hybrid nature anyway one of the things Cavendish does um, and which even her presence in the society highlighted was how these experiments were on the brink between sort of fact and storytelling anyway um, and perhaps that's a bit of a discomfort but Pepys in his diary also says uh, something which which also highlights something about Cavendish which is the way in which she's kind of silenced someone who had so much to say and so much that's so interesting he says I do not like her at all and nor did I hear her say anything that was worth hearing Um, and you know perhaps this is something that uh, he's setting a pattern there that a lot of people fell into afterwards yeah
3: so it was I take it
5: unusual that she was there at all yeah 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 um I think perhaps you know there had been Uh, other women who had had dealings with the society who had offered objects to the um, repository or you know been part of certain observations and and certainly been kind of patrons but to come in having written uh, what she'd written and and to think of herself as and have positioned herself as somebody who had a view on this that mattered was uh, extraordinary um, and extraordinarily interesting in a way that people at the time perhaps didn't, uh, but they realised, but perhaps didn't know how to cope with. Them. This kind of dual publication, these two
3: different kinds of science writing, so as you said, the kind of more formal reaction mm. to mm. the Royal Society's experiments, and then this imaginative take on it that is much more in line with what we now think of, I think, as being science fiction. Mm. Mm. In terms of the publication history of that, and the sort of the fact that one is something I'd heard of that you can find on the shelves in bookshops that is published by kind of mainstream publishers the blazing world yeah the fact that that has remained sort of part part of canon to a degree anyway and that her other writing the fact that it was originally published with it but now has been sort of separated the work has been bisected what do you think we're to make of that
5: yeah well that's very very interesting and uh, the sort of afterlives of these texts uh, is something you can really um, that's really tangible if you if you go and look for them um, and of course you can go to one of you know the, the leading libraries and find an original copy but if you want to get a modern copy as you say Blazing World is in all sorts of good bookshops has been very popular well at least you know in the last century or so um, and uh, an increasingly popular um, but observations on experimental philosophy is, I think, in, in a sort of more expensive Cambridge University Press history of philosophy uh, series edited by a very good female editor. Um, but, you know, probably the, the, the most recent publication of that text, you know, since it was originally published. What's very funny, in, in, even when I went looking for the text... When I went looking for um, all of Cavendish's texts in the library just as an experiment, um, I went into the upper reading room of the Bodleian where the sort of history of science is and there were none of Cavendish's texts there. Blazing World is then in the English faculty um, and Observations on Experimental Philosophy is in the Philosophy Library as separate volumes. Again, when I went to the bookshop to, as an experiment, try and buy observations uh, on experimental philosophy, they first of all said, oh, that'll be in the philosophy department and transferred me there. And they said, no, 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 that'll be in literature and transferred me there. And they kept transferring me to different departments until they conceded that the book was lost because it had been misshelved somewhere. Um, and so we're in a total confusion today about how these things might fit together although they seem to have so much in common you know the real society and its experiments um, which Cavendish's sort of first um, bit of writing obviously reflects on and the sort of fictional fantastic society of, of beast men that the Emperor sets up She came to the Imperial City which appeared
0: in form like several islands for rivers did run betwixt every street which together with the bridges whereof there was a great number were all paved The city itself was built of gold, and their architectures were noble, stately, and magnificent. Not like our modern, but like those in the Romans' time. For our modern buildings are like those houses which children used to make of cards. One story above another, fitter for birds than men. No sooner was the lady brought before the emperor, but he conceived her to be some goddess, and offered to worship her, which she refused, telling him... For by that time she had pretty well learned their language, that although she came out of another world, yet she was but a mortal, at which the emperor rejoicing made her his wife and gave her an absolute power to rule and govern all that world as she pleased. But her subjects, who could hardly be persuaded to believe her mortal, tendered her all the veneration and worship due to a deity. The rest of the inhabitants of that world were men of several different sorts, shapes, figures, dispositions and humours, Each followed such a profession as was most proper for the nature of their species which the Empress encouraged them in. The bear men were to be her experimental philosophers, the bird men her astronomers, the fly worm and fish men her natural philosophers, the ape men her chemists, the satyrs her galenic physicians, the fox men her politicians, the spider and lice men her mathematicians, the jackdaw, magpie, parrot men her orators and logicians. The Giants, her architects, etc
5: I think it probably tells us something about how today we need to think about what we consider to be science writing because we we have an idea of the history of science of things that happened within the institutions of science and of people who had a clear worldview as Cavendish does in her writing about you know the physics of the world, the way the world works, of theories of the world, but yet we don't see that the publication of, of, of texts together uh, uh, an allegedly non-fiction with a fiction could, could have been a, a very specific thing to do a very, a very purposeful thing to do of directing um, a fiction into the path of science or of directing science into the path of fiction and of watching them collide in a way that was so so interesting and you know Perhaps it's time to reprint those things together, or to to consider them together, and perhaps it's time to take seriously the relation of imaginative writing to science. She highlights something very interesting about science fiction and fantasy and its potentials, um, which is if we come back to this idea of the new world, how do you see a new world? How can you, in the world we're in, where we think we know a certain amount of things, how can we sort of bring ourselves up to a new understanding? And it's really an idea of kind of revolution you know people call this this time the scientific revolution because people were discovering new worlds but of course there are all sorts of new worlds to discover uh, new political worlds new ideas the idea of a political revolution the idea of a feminist revolution and you know that the the world that cavendish conceives of has women in, in charge has women in positions of power that they perhaps weren't in in her world and very much the idea of in science how do you discover something new how do you tip yourself over into thinking what's currently unthinkable truly new ideas they overlap quite considerably and I think this is something that Cavendish was tapping into um and and, and something that obviously uh, we we talk about now uh, science, science fiction fantasy writers of having understood something before it was officially discovered like say William Gibson is is a kind of major one or um the worlds that people have described or the, the sort of technologies or Asimov or any of these writers who um, uh, discovered something uh, with their imagination that later appeared to be discovered by science. I mean I think that the fact of this question of how do we get to something new, we know we're on the, we know we could know more but how do we really do it um, is a question of, of both creative writing and of science and Cavendish can see that as can all uh, really brilliant you know, science fiction writers since. There's a revolutionary spirit in there.
0: The sun, as much as they could observe, they related to be a firm or solid stone of vast bigness, of colour yellowish and of an extraordinary splendour. But the moon, they said, was of a whitish colour, and although she looked dim in the presence of the sun, yet she had her own light and was a shining body of herself as might be perceived by her vigorous appearance in moonshiny nights. Concerning the heat of the sun, they were not of one opinion. Some would have the sun hot in itself, alleging an old tradition that it should at some time break asunder and burn the heavens and consume this world into hot embers, which, said they, could not be done if the sun were not fiery of itself.
2: That was Eleanor Rushton speaking to Olivia Smith and the extracts of Margaret Cavendish's work were read by Olivia Onyohara.
3: So what I found really interesting about talking about Margaret Cavendish was this idea of the human imagination as a a sort of tool at work in both science and creative writing and the idea that both can be um, sort of conduits for discovery obviously scientific discovery is a concept we're all very familiar with which is you know scientists working um, and progressing towards a goal of discovery but something that came up in talking about margaret cavendish was this idea of imaginative writing as speculative as a sort of um as a probe for what could be discovered and even though obviously we wouldn't be going and basing any sort of um you know school of science on a novel someone has written it's this idea that it's the same kind of brain it's a human brain that it's a work in both of them which i found really really interesting especially because margaret cavendish wrote both science a science book in the sort of more typical sense of writing about experiments and what she thought of them and then also coupled this in the same volume with the blazing world which was this "Mm, what if we found out all this other stuff
2: yeah it's it's i've been planning through all the old uh, twilight zones recently and um, all the ones that aren't about like a haunted tuba or whatever, but they're all uh, all the ones that are very science-driven. They all seem amazingly prescient, especially looking back from what are we now fifty years in the future? Mm. And you, uh, there's just some tremendous stuff. Like I mean, the very first episode, or maybe the pilot, I'm not sure if it was the first broadcast, but uh, the first episode uh, that was made was is is about the training you'd have to undergo in order to land on the moon. And uh, this is something which I think we still considered total pie in the sky, but I believe it was projected that it would happen in the next 10 years, which of course was almost exact to the first transmission of Twilight Zone. And so much sort of, I guess you'd call it almost pulpy sci-fi, no matter how um, fantastical in its its intentions, it can often predict something uh, in, insanely possible that you had, would have had no idea when you wrote it that that would have led to that.
3: Mm. And I think the um, the sort of the intersection between science and the social implications as well, which obviously um, so often the way we see science in the media and things like that, we've made this discovery. What does this mean for X, Y, or Z? Those are things that can be really readily explored by fiction as well. So the, what will we do if this happened? And that even when those particular discoveries don't occur, something which brings up the same moral issues may well do. And it's just Really interesting to see how authors deal with those and speculate about those. Um, yeah,
2: I'm trying to remember what it was, but I think it's more or less. It, it, I think it's the Foundation trilogy by Isaac Asimov, which more or less predicts the internet. Uh, I think there's a few stories that have at various times in history uh, created a version of the internet, sort of a information and communications network, but. Uh, I think Asimov was the closest in his projection as I recall. Yeah. Please write in and correct me.
3: <laughs> and lots of things to do with thing um, sort of um, gene therapy and cloning and um, yeah, interesting.
2: One question which confronted us this month was can fiction be inspired by science but not be science fiction? Comedy writer Ollie Olsop may just have the answer. We present an original story etc recording of his short piece Saturday Night in the Solar System featuring some explicit language.
6: My name is Galileo Galilei and I've compiled a list of all the twatish things I've observed the planets getting up to through my telescope at the weekend. Mercury. Constantly hopped up on speed. Everyone tries to tell him the mod revival was ages ago but he'll be there in the clubs, suited and booted. <laughs> Nutcase. Venus. Tries to come on all aloof and ladylike, but the sad truth is Venus will shag anything that moves. Asteroids, bits that have fallen off rockets, particles of light and Mercury if he's been on the randy Mandys. Mars. What a cunt. You only have to look at him the wrong way and he'll glass you. If you see him across the bar, my advice is finish your pint, say you've got to get the night bus and leg it. Don't look back, leg it. Use your legs, leg it. Jupiter. Who ate all the pies? Jupiter. He wasn't always such a fat bastard, but he's been hitting the kebab shops for a long, long time. If you want to know where the term gas giant comes from, then try standing behind him in the queue for the gents after he's had a mixed donor with extra curry sauce and the truth will be brought home to you. Saturn. If he even bothers going out in the first place, he gets back and puts on his King Crimson records and smokes yet another joint. No one can really remember what he was called before he became a hippie, but Mercury reckons it was Keith. Uranus. I've heard he's done time. He doesn't look the type, just sits in the corner with his bicycle helmet and a packet of ready salted crisps but I suppose you have to be wary of the quiet ones some geezer took the piss out of his name once too often and he snapped apparently Neptune or 19 pints Neptune as they call him I have literally never seen him sober look out when you see him there's a 50-50 chance he's about to be violently ill at any given moment Some of his sick is no longer in our galaxy. Pluto, still bitter about being kicked out of the planets and still campaigning to get himself reinstated. And he still can't understand why none of them stuck up for him. He's convinced it's some kind of conspiracy. But the truth is actually very simple. He's never, ever, ever bought around. Saturday
2: Night in the Solar System was written by Ollie Allsop, performed by Jamie Laird and directed by me, Tom Crowley. If you'd like to read more of Ollie's stories, you can find many more at thisisdefinitelywhathappened.wordpress.com
4: One of the other things that we wanted to talk about, uh, particularly in these chats, was the, the mundane humanity of particularly science fiction but I think it also stems in scientific fiction as well. Um, what I really like about sci-fi is how inclusive it can be um, I've been reading Pratchett since I was 10, I think. And what I love about it is that it, it gives you an aspect, um, a sort of nugget of a world that you recognise, whether that's money or trains or carpets, and then expands on it to such an extent that your 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 mind gets blown. But um, everybody has that same attachment to it because it's that one simple nugget. Everybody has a connection to that. And it's it doesn't discriminate on knowledge or education or race gender aid what you know whatever um anybody can take that nugget of, of living in a carpet or um the police you know whatever whatever it is and then and then be fully open to whatever world that writer chooses to open up for you.
2: Everyone can relate to living in a carpet.
4: Everyone can relate to living in a carpet. <laughs> 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 no, you mean... You mean like, you can't? <laughs> no, I never have yet. I, I
2: hope it's still ahead of me. But I, I, um, I agree with you completely. I, I think also what one thing I love is, is when you introduce a sort of super high-tech uh, or hypothetically technological, you know, extrapolated society and you impose very human fallibility in it. And the examples that immediately come to mind are the Weyland Yutani Corporation being confronted with the Xenomorph in the Alien films, and deciding we can probably monetize this, and then that leads to all of the problems. And if they weren't <laughs> like that, it would be fine. They just leave the planet, leave them to it. But likewise, um, the what always occurs is the the kind of griminess of the first three Star Wars films, and uh, similarly, Blade Runner is is extremely grimy, and there's there's the image of a Chinese takeaway box in a flying police car (laughs) that's just incredibly appealing because you go, well, we have flying cars in this future and we have missions to moon colonies, but we also have Chinese takeaway in those little white boxes you see in films. And there's something lovely about that. And I think it's something that people had uh, against the Star Wars prequels was that everything was quite shiny mm, and polished. yeah polished and very uh, snazzy, whereas it's far more interesting if you see a seeing a spaceship that's just come out of the, the factory and looks amazing and is pure pure and clean is far much much less interesting than a spaceship with the past that's written in like various burns and bits fallen off <laughs> and I think that's that kind of I think reads a lot more true.
3: I think also leading on from that as well as those sort of those recognizable. Elements of what, how of how have how humans or p- people live. You know, we make things dirty, we mess things up, all those things. I also something I I personally find really key in um, a piece of science writing is that element of the human reactions to the innovations should be truthful as well. So. I love it when, when sort of something new is introduced in a piece of science fiction and people respond, they, they're sort of shocked by it or they're confused by it or they don't know what's going on or if, um, or yeah, or if someone finds themselves in a new world, the fact that there's a, there, you know, there are people kind of poking things with their feet or kind of, or sort of prodding things in the way that humans would. I personally, I find that really important, that human element that's a lot of black mirror as well yes
2: my phone can do what yes
3: yeah exactly i'm that. going
2: to use that to convince my ex-girlfriend to get back with me or yeah the idea
3: of you know if, if sci-fi is kind of about height, maybe heightening what is currently real then i think the the important linchpin in making it believable and making it absorbing is how would we be if this were true what would we say? What would I do if I opened the Evening Standard and read that, you know, humans could now do such and such? I, li- I like it when science fiction includes that.
2: As sci-fi becomes more popular as a genre and more widespread over a multitude of different media, tracing its history can help us trace the development of modern society and the prevalent popular attitudes within it. To get an expert overview on sci-fi to date, as well as some projections for its future, I went to Royal Holloway, University of London, to speak to Adam Roberts, a prolific sci-fi author and historian. We discussed popular sci-fi, the modern day's preference for dystopia over utopia, and what triggered the development of the very first works of science fiction.
1: Okay, so I am Adam Roberts, and I'm a writer of science fiction, and I'm a critic of science fiction, and I'm an academic at Royal Holloway, University of London in which fine building we are currently sitting to discuss this important matter. So there, there are several narratives about science fiction and where it comes from, and uh, my take on it is not exactly the same as most critics. Most critics think science fiction began, some people say, in 1927, when Hugo Gernsback coined the term science fiction and founded the first science fiction magazine. Some people say it's older than that, it goes back to the 19th century in H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. More people say it goes back to Mary Shelley's famous novel Frankenstein, which is 1818, which people say, Brian Oldis famously says that's the first science fiction novel. I have a different history. My history goes back further still to about 1600, and I think the first science fiction novel is a little-known short but wonderful tale called Somnium, which is the Latin for dream. Uh, and it was written by Johannes Kepler, who's famous as a scientist and an astronomer, and he most of his work is, is straightforwardly scientific, but towards the end of his life he wrote this short fantasy about a, a man who goes to the moon and meets weird moon aliens and sees this completely bizarre landscape, and it's a wonderful thing. Now, the reason why that is important, I would say, is if you think science fiction begins basically in the 19th century or thereabouts, if you think science fiction begins with the Industrial Revolution, then you, you think of science fiction as a particular sort of literature, a particular sort of art. It's to do with industrialization and modernity and so on. If, on the other hand, you go all the way back to 1600 with me, as I invite you to do, then you, you end up thinking about science fiction differently. It becomes a product of the, the Protestant Reformation. It becomes caught up in that world when Protestantism is is born and separates off from Catholicism. And that is important because there are long traditions of fantasy writing fantasy adventures that involve magic and monsters and myth, transcendence. Uh, Those sorts of stories are thousands of years old. My argument is what happens with the Protestant Reformation is a new kind of fantasy comes into the world that is based not on magic but on science, not on... The impossible fantasy, but on the the probable material scientific possibilities. And it makes it into a kind of Protestant mode of art. So I tend to think of science fiction as older than many critics, and I think it has a longer pedigree. And I think it's interested in some of the same things as fantasy, but it goes about it in a completely different way. So that It's a material sublime, what science fiction fans sometimes call a sense of wonder, that mind-blowing thing where you think just how enormous the universe is, how prodigious, how small we are by comparison. Uh, And it's interested in technologies that are plausible and in voyages of exploration that are bound up with, again, a particularly Protestant logic. And fantasy doesn't go away. Fantasy is still very important. In fact, arguably, fantasy is more important. That's That's what the world of publishing tells us, that people buy seven fantasy novels for every one science fiction novel that gets sold people love fantasy still but I think there is there's a deep kind of cultural DNA that this takes science fiction in a particular direction it's a really interesting question and I think it's one of the ways that we can distinguish between science, fantasy and science fiction and I'm speaking very broadly and it's possible to come up with counter examples but to speak broadly fantasy is kind of in love with an idealised past you think of something like The Lord of the Rings whereas science fiction is oriented towards the possible future. So science fiction sees technological change and also sometimes social change in terms of the way it opens up imaginative possibilities, whereas for fantasy writing, certainly for high classic fantasy writing and that C.S. Yes, Lewis-Tolkien mode, change is to be deplored, really. It's a, sh- it's a shame that we're losing the Edenic perfection of Middle-earth as it used to be. You don't want to have Saruman coming along and inventing new machines. That somehow pollutes that vision. And I think Pratchett is a really interesting example because he, his Discworld novels have the, f- the notional form of fantasy but they're worked out with this beautiful scientific rigour. Magic works like a science. And his, his world is constantly growing and changing and evolving and you know, he never wants to freeze it in time in, in that nostalgic way. I think, it's, I think it's, a, it's a dynamic process, and I think there are lots of examples. I mean, there are Some of them are small examples, some of them are larger examples where science fiction drives change. And I think that's become increasingly true since the 60s, and the reason for that is because television and cinema have just such a vast, ubiquitous cultural penetration. Everybody watches Doctor Who, everybody goes to see the new Star Wars movie, and when I meet people... They'll say, Well, I'm not much of a fan of science fiction. I'll say, Well, did you go and see the latest Star Wars movie? Did you see Avatar? Oh, yes. Do you like the Marvel Comic Universe films? Oh, yes. Everyone sees it as a visual art form screen and television. A show like Star Trek had specific practical consequences for the world, and it had much larger social consequences for the world. So, a practical example would be the sliding doors on the USS Enterprise. I don't know if you know this story. Mm-hmm. So sliding, you, you know what the USS Enterprise looks like, of yeah. course. And they're on the bridge, and you walk off the bridge, and the doors go and open out, and you walk straight through. And this was at a time when there were no practical sliding doors in real life. So the way that, that Paramount did that was they had two stagehands behind the scenes with a little slit that they had to look through and ropes in each hand. And when they saw an actor walk towards the door, they had to pull the door aside so the actor could walk through, and sometimes they didn't. And the, the great thing is the actor had to walk to the door with the illusion of perfect confidence that the door was going to open. He couldn't walk up and kind of hesitate, thinking, is it opening or not? He had to walk, and sometimes they'd walk straight into the door because the stagehands hadn't (laughs) pulled it back far enough. But the point is, people saw that, and they said, why don't we have doors like that in our world? And it gave an impetus to the research that produced, in quite short order, sliding doors, which we now have in our shopping centres and hotels and so on. And that was, you can trace a direct correlation there between people seeing it on their television screens every night, thinking, why don't we have that? And I've seen arguments made similarly for you know, the, the tricorders that the Star Trek characters have and iPads nowadays and communication devices and mobile phones. It, it makes it seem natural that this is the kind of technology we should have and then the inventors come and supply those gaps. But more importantly, I think, in a larger sense... Star Trek is the show that had the first interracial kiss on primetime television. It's a show that had an you know, ethnically diverse cast, all working together. It it presented a vision of the future that said the future will be a place of diversity and integration uh, and equality. And it is, strictly speaking, a communist utopia, the Federation, because they don't have any money and everyone works together and it's to each according to their abilities and from each according to their needs. It's the other way around, isn't it? But, <laughs> Whichever way that quotation... We understood was. that. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I don't want to overstate it. It was, on the one hand, it was only a kind of grummy TV show. It was there to pass the time and entertain people. But it, it it sets our parameters of expectation for what the future can be. And one of the things that's interesting to me, speaking as a historian, if you like, of science fiction, I mean, that, that makes me sound very pompous and grand. And I'm only, only a little bit pompous, and I'm not grand at all. But if I were to speak as a historian of science fiction, it interests me that... What was in the 60s and to a certain extent in the 70s a kind of utopian dream that things were going to get better in the future seems to have turned around. And now we're fascinated by dystopia and now it's you know, the Hunger Games. So when I was a kid, I was reading um, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which is a beautiful kind of pre-Raphaelite idealized world with evil in it but it's a place of where you think I'd love to go and live there I wanted to go and live there when I was 12 or whatever it was now kids are reading Game of Thrones um, the Song of Ice and Fire the George R. R. Martin novels and that's not an attractive place to be at all why would anyone want to go to Westeros it's horrible it's cold and violent and nasty it's a kind of dystopian version of the fantasy ideal Mm. and it interests me that there's been this shift in taste that we we seem to have an insatiable appetite for these dark dystopian dreams of what the future may be and then maybe the world got darker there is a counterintuitive argument that Frederick Jameson and other critics make which says the reverse actually you might not expect them to they say that the reason why we we are so drawn to grim and gritty dystopian visions is because our lives are so good Everyone's so much better off now than they were a generation ago. Everyone's so We have so many more toys and disposable income, and uh, our longevity's greater and our health is better. There's a yearning to break out of that comfortable bubble and to imagine, because we're only imagining it. We don't actually have to live in Westeros. That would be intolerable. We don't actually have to fight in The Hunger Games. But having that frame gives more resonance and more authenticity to what is otherwise quite a a soapy romance about a girl and two hot boys which of the hot boys will she go with they're both hot <laughs> and they both adore her uh, they're thinking that's that's kind of pure saccharine in a way so yeah. you put it in this, this situation where everything's violent and dark and everything's threatened I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm not doing down The Hunger Games The Hunger Games seem to be quite interesting novels actually particularly as they go on towards the end they engage head on with some quite chewy political questions and I think teenagers, again, are interested in that. They, they want to think through questions of fascism and social responsibility and the distribution of wealth, all these things that sound very dry until you frame them as this action adventure. And I'm old enough, and I am old, as uh, you luckily can't see, but um, I'm old enough to remember when 2000 AD, the British comic started, mm. and I read it from an early stage. And I can't deny I loved Judge Dredd. I thought he was an extraordinary creation science fiction creation, but that's a dystopia of the future. And more importantly, Dredd himself is just a fascist. He's not ironically a fascist. He's genuinely, straightforwardly authoritarian fascist policeman. Why do we love him so much? Why do we love this fascist? We don't love fascists in real life, do we? I don't. No, neither do I. It seemed, uh, reading it as a kid, when I was still a schoolboy when it started coming out, and all my friends at school read it, and it just seemed daring and kind of dangerous and a bit grown up because it was so violent I suppose and so relentless and the the clear blue water between a comic like that and you know the dandy or whatever it might be maybe there is something that's appealing about a darker vision that we like the villains rather than the heroes so the narrative will go through the 70s which was a troubled decade in several ways and then in the 80s the big thing in science fiction was cyberpunk Uh, cyberpunk is is a kind of extrapolation of of computing futures and virtual realities into this horrible future that's drawn from noir fiction, crime fiction of the 30s and 40s. Visually, the key text is is Blade Runner, which is a tremendous film, but there's lots and lots of novels that work through that same sort of vision. And again, you wouldn't want to live in the world of Blade Runner. Um, But it's a beautiful visual text. It's very rich and dark and strange. I think it is fair to say, I don't want to overstate it, but um Ridley Scott's two great contributions to science fiction and he's you know, he's going over that same ground now with Prometheus and dreadful, dreadful films that they are. But yep. the first alien movie, even more than the alien, even more than the expert handling of all the shock moments and the blood and all those wonderful Geiger designs of the aliens, was just the, the design decision that was made early on, where they said the Nostromo, the spaceship, is not going to be all gleaming corridors and bright lights. It's going to be like an actual you know, cargo ship. It's going to be gritty and horrible and a bit dirty and a bit grimy. And he captures that so well. So it's, his achievement really is textural. He creates a particular visual texture that's just gorgeous. And it's made out of the, you know, the, the entropy and decay and the, the stuff of the real world. And Blade Runner is, in a sense, the extrapolation of that to the whole globe to the whole city and everything is run down and everything is and there is you're right there's something elegiac and, and quite i don't want to sound pretentious something quite profound about that i mm-hmm. think the dynamic of science fiction itself has um, shifted so completely in the last generation the stuff i read when i was growing up as a kid in the 70s was what they now call golden age science fiction and we're talking about writers like Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein, all those old figures, and they were all old white dudes, and they dominated. And there were plenty of women writing science fiction in, in the 30s and 40s as well, but the big names are all white men. And that just isn't true anymore. Science fiction's appeal to audiences is much broader than just geeky, sad teenage boys, as I was, and as I still am underneath this. <laughs> svelte middle-aged appearance it's now it reaches it's a global appeal as many women as men like it it's it's uh, if i wanted to complicate that narrative a little bit it sounds a bit utopian in its own right we could say science fiction is being fought over there is a, a, a group of fans who want to go back to that older style where they have their ideological certainties and it is a bit more Uh, Settled, But then many fans are drawn to science fiction precisely because it's a a playground for possibilities of hybridities and diversities and anything becomes open. So I think where science fiction is going to go is it's going to become less white and less straight and less male. It's already becoming those things. Some of the most interesting writers working today come not from North America or Europe but from other places in the world and some of the best writers are women and... Uh, there's a lot more queer science fiction, there's a lot more diversity in that sense. And I don't say that in a, in a mere uh, kind of gesture towards uh, tolerance and uh, that the rainbow bridge of the Starship Enterprise in the original series. I think it's just a, an objective fact of the genre now. And it makes for very exciting reading. It makes for much more varied and diverse reading. So there's a lot of interesting writers from the Middle East and from Africa and from, the, from India and from the Far East and they have interestingly different perspectives. So if we go right back to what I was saying at the beginning, I think science fiction starts as a European phenomenon, really. I think the first science fiction texts in the 17th and the 18th centuries are French and German and British. Um, and it's, it gets a second wind when it becomes a big deal and in North America, in and in, in the USA in particular, at the beginning of the 20th century. And I think the third wave of science fiction is going to be a properly globalised science fiction, where that European and North American history is uh, supplemented by properly global vision. And that's the great thing about science fiction. It's it's open-ended possibilities for any kind of imaginative play that interests you.
2: A bright and broad future for science fiction, then. But in the present day, what can fiction and entertainment do to promote a better attitude towards scientific scrutiny and progress? Gemma Arrowsmith is a writer, actor and comedian. You might well have seen her What Were You Wearing sketch, as featured on Tracy Ullman's show, which went viral internationally, earning 30 million views on BBC Comedy's Facebook page alone. Gemma's sketch comedy promotes logical thinking on social issues and healthy scepticism in the face of bad science. And it's also very, very funny. Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton spoke to Gemma recently and we now present their interview alongside some of Gemma's sketches which she performed at our recent live fundraiser at the Wenlock and Essex in London.
7: Hello, my name is Gemma Arrowsmith and I do comedy often around the subjects of science and I guess scepticism as well. I have wanted to be a comedian since I was about ten. Um, before that, I wanted to be a ventriloquist, um, which <laughs> I like that you went ventriloquist first. and yeah. then comedian. Ventriloquist than comedian first, and then ventriloquist. And, uh, focused child. Yeah, I did Apparently, my parents told me I didn't. Uh, I, I spoke without moving my lips for about six months, so, to the point where they were worried. <laughs> Can you still do it? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Oh, That's pretty that, good. That's pretty really good. I mean, it worked. So cross it out on a podcast. Podcast. It's not. It's it's not an audio. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've known I wanted to be a comedian since I was ten. I, I it was the year I went to London for the first time. My parents took me to see Starlight Express. EG. Brilliant. Really good. Um, and I it was also the first year I watched Faulty Towers. Uh, the episode, uh, The Builders, which I think in the old VHS, if any of you listeners remember, it was the brown one. Yes, he it was. was. was so the brown one. <laughs> <laughs> With um, Basil the, rat on, Basil the well. rat on it as well. Yes. And the Rat on it was And the first episode I saw was that, and it's still my favourite, I think, Aww. The Builders, because of that. Um, and from then on, I, I thought I want to go to London, because I lived in Birmingham, I grew up in Birmingham, um, I want to go to London, and I want to write and perform comedy. <laughs> so I aimed myself at that like a, a bullet. Okay, so the first sketch takes place in an alternative universe in which Cheryl Cole has a science degree. Um, And I think the adverts would go a bit more like this. Weak, limp, lifeless hair. The new product from L'Oreal can sort that out, girls. Here's the science. Hair, by definition, is a collection of dead filamentous biomaterial grown from the skin or dermis. It can never actually be alive in itself, but society prefers that it stays washed and shiny, so that's what this product's for, washing it. As for, as for weak, hair is actually about as strong as aluminium. One strand can hold 100 grams, which means the average head of hair could support the weight of two elephants. Pretty impressive. Sorry, cut, cut, cut. Um, Cheryl, is this exactly the script that we gave you? Ah, uh, no. Uh, I, I did some research and I noticed quite a lot of inaccuracies, so I just, I just tweaked it a bit. Was that wrong? No, not wrong, exactly. Well, I mean, you want to be honest with your customers though, don't you? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, Look, we're gonna start with a different product. We're gonna start with this face cream. Here's the script, okay. No. You see, it says here that this face cream can literally turn back time. But while it might be theoretically possible for time to go in either direction, practice shows that there's an arrow of time going from the past into the future, which means the human body will slowly atrophy away. And this face cream's not going to make a blind bit of difference. And and I looked it up, and it turns out there's no such word as microdermabrasion. Right, just... Just do the ad, okay? I okay. Hello, girls. Try a new face cream from L'Oreal. It's basically like your bog standard E20 cream, only it's a lot pricier. Uh, <laughs> you're paying for the packaging, and it's not it's uh, it's not allowed to work too well, otherwise it'd be classed as a medicine and only available on prescription. Right, let's let's um let's uh, let's put her on makeup, okay? She can't ruin makeup. Hello, girls. Do you want to make your lips look more like labia in order to attract a mate? Well, L'Oreal i have got the product for you. Right, let's, let's get someone else. Let's get someone younger while we're at it as well. She's, what, 30 now? That's like 70 in television woman years. Okay. So I've done three, uh, three sort of science type comedy shows. The first one was called Defender of Earth. The second one was called Everything That's Wrong With The Universe. And then this one is called Earthling. So there's a theme. A theme emerges. Um, and also, also thanks to my mother who brought me up on a diet of science fiction as well. She's a huge science fiction fiend. Uh, So Star Trek and Quantum Leap and um, loads of uh, Philip K. Dick books and things like that as well. So um, so Earthling is about um, Carl Sagan and the 1977 NASA Voyager missions. Voyagers 1 and 2 uh, blasted off in 1977 to explore the outer solar system, but then they carried on. And Voyager 1 is now in interstellar space, has been since 2012. It's the first man-made object to leave the solar system. Um, and I decided, I've been, I've been absolutely obsessed with this um, mission in particular since I was little. Aboard Voyagers 1 and 2, there are these golden phonograph records which contain sounds and images from Earth. And there's a human heartbeat, there are images of different cultures, uh, the counting system and different music. So there's Mozart and... and um, Spring Awakening, really cool stuff and I thought I'd do a show about whoever it is that comes across that first intercepts Voyager 1 or 2 and what they would make of us and it's been said that if those records are ever found humanity will be long gone because they're not even it would take them thousands of years to reach our nearest star and it's not even headed in that direction so the, the likelihood of anyone ever coming anyone or anything ever coming across these records is really pretty infinitesimal but... I imagined what, it, what they would think of humanity if they did. Oh, Jennifer, thank God you're here. We think we've made a significant breakthrough. We've discovered an enzyme in the developmental pathways of the patients with embryonal tumours within multi-layered rosettes. You know what this means? This enzyme is a potential treatment target. We could significantly reduce the instances of infantile brain tumours. That's great, guys, but listen. Um, I've got something to tell you, and it's not going to be easy. I'm leaving cancer research but we're making huge strides, you're an essential part of the team. I know, but there's another area of science that really needs me. Somewhere I can really make a difference. Oh, what more difference than child cancer. Yes. I'm moving to shampoo research. No, no, just, just, just hear me out. There are breakthroughs being made in shampoo every day. Did you know that L'Oreal recently micronized hair molecules to hydrate your hair? What the hell does micronized mean? It's ionic hairy texturizing. Didn't you read this in The Lancet? Positive ions. (laughs) Positive ions have lost an electron and are considered unhealthy. No, no, let me finish. Negative ions have gained an electron and assist in a body's mood, energy level and overall health. When these benevolent ions... Right, what the fuck is a benevolent ion? No, 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 encounter water. They penetrate through the cuticle and into the core of each hair. Right, none of what you just said makes any sense. Look, it's a complex area of science, okay? I wouldn't expect you to understand. (laughs) My PhD is in structural and molecular biology. Yeah, exactly. Hair science isn't your specialism. Right. We're we're saving people's lives. You're making people's hair a bit shinier. Who the hell cares? What could possibly prompt you to leave cancer research? Well, I'll be earning roughly four times what I'm earning here and I won't have to beg for funding every year. Right. Do they need any more people?
3: (laughs) What is it, do you think, about, well, science that got you interested in it from an artistic point of view and the kind of the idea of telling funny stories about it and around it.
7: I think I I worked for Children's BBC for a while, both as a a writer and a a performer, and I think it's education by stealth. It's hiding education in a a sugary exterior of fun so that you can take that pill easier. Um, And so we've always encouraged, you know, if you can get a lesson in this sketch or this sitcom then great for children's bbc and uh i think that's that's what got me interested in you know trying to get a sciencey issue or subject across to an audience but in a way that makes them laugh as soon as i always i teach at drama schools and the example i was using my students is um if someone just shouts at you uh, you just switch off whereas if you can make them laugh or if you can uh, make them cry even they'll be there that's an engagement you're engaging um, as opposed to just sort of zoning out um, and I think that comedy is comedy can be so many things uh, it can be silly but it also can be incredibly powerful I think if used well um, and so it's yeah I I Comedy is always the medium I've used. I, c- I can't take myself seriously, so um, even I'm struggling now, but um, uh, I was, in fact, I was looking back through all of the pieces, the monologues and uh, songs I did at drama school, and I was going, God, it's all comedy. How, they was, I was so naughty, I didn't do anything serious. And even now I find it difficult to do serious um, things. So comedy is always my medium, and when I have a subject I want to broach, comedy will be the first thing that I think of. So I still can't think in any other medium, almost. Um, I would struggle to write... I think I would struggle to write a drama, just a full-on drama. I write bits of serious moments, maybe, peppered throughout, but I I don't think in any other way, really. Yeah, I don't think in serious. (laughs) Hey guys, uh, thank you for tuning into my channel, my food science channel. I love you guys so much. Thank you for all the love you gave my last video. Um, I've got some really exciting news. I'm now a fully qualified nutritionist. Uh, I was going to be a dietitian, but it turns out you need to write essays and shit. So uh, I looked up what qualifications you need to be a nutritionist. Turns out you don't need any. So I'm a nutritionist. You're a nutritionist as well. We're all nutritionists. So um, I was looking up uh, this article by my favourite nutritionist. Nutritionist, the food babe. Um, This is true. And she said, there is just no acceptable level of any chemical to ingest ever. Yeah, finally, someone had the guts to say it. About time. Um, Now, most (laughs) detox programs don't go anywhere near far enough. So, this is my detox extreme how to avoid chemicals completely. chemicals are really bad for you but they're everywhere in food shampoo even in the water we drink they say they put it in there to like clean it or keep our teeth healthy or keep us subdued right guys don't live in ignorance see i started my detox by just eating raw fruit but it turns out that even an apple contains like potassium sodium zinc aren't those metals as well as like pantothenic acid stearic acid anolic acid malic acid uh last time i checked acid was really bad for you people throw it in people's faces on the news it's a bad thing so fruit was out then I looked into breatharianism which is where you just live on air but it turns out that like even the air we breathe contains like argon and nitrogen and carbon dioxide as well as oxygen. Who's putting this stuff in the air we breathe? Probably the government. Say, I went to my GP to ask about living without chemicals and she sort of laughed and said, have you considered living in a vacuum? But my vacuum's full of dust and shit. I mean, it it is a Dyson, but I think it's still got chemicals in there. And anyway, I couldn't fit. I mean, I am slim, I wear children's sizes. She said, um, no, a vacuum like space. So I called the European Space Agency to ask about living on board the International Space Station, but they said you needed like a minimum postgraduate degree in astrophysics. I told them about my diploma in physical vibrations, but they said that wasn't the same thing. Discrimination. Um, I asked if there were any chemicals on board the ISS, and they said something about taking me on board as plant life. But I wasn't really listening by that stage because I realized that their solar arrays are totally made of chemicals. So basically, space is full of chemicals and not for me. So now I'm looking at living in a different dimension. The scientists at CERN told me that other dimensions are purely theoretical and actually traveling there would require whole new areas of physics and engineering to be written, but I'm pretty sure I can get there through yoga. (laughs) No, no, like if I really believe in it. I will have to leave my corporeal body behind because it turns out that even the human body contains like sulfur and magnesium and sodium. Like, what the hell? Anyway, thanks so much for tuning into my videos. Make sure you watch my videos on chemtrails. Uh, the government's poisoning us. Um, Bush did 9-11. Thanks very much. Bye. <laughs> what comes first? A fact or a joke? Oh, that's an excellent question. A fact, definitely, I think. I don't know if this is as hard cut as... Yeah, no, I think it is. I think it's always a, a, a fact. Um... Fotson always say that their theirs is the only comedy show that that comes with footnotes, um, and so they have, they reference their show. They have genuine references that you can go and see. My my shows uh, are less scientifically vigorous, but that said, um, I do fact check it. Like I, I for this show, I uh, read well loads of Carl Sagan, which is not a chore. My goodness, his his writing is so beautiful. Um, so the cosmic connect I'd read a lot of his stuff before but I read The Cosmic Connection which was about the Pioneer mission a few years before Voyager and then Murmurs of Earth which is the the main book that he wrote about this project which is quite difficult to track down but I really encourage your listeners to if you possibly can to track it down because it's it's a, a wonderful book and he I think the reason he was such a great science communicator is um he's not dry to listen to it's it's just sort of beautiful language and he wrote um Contact the the. Well, it was a book, and then it was turned into a film. And uh, there's a the bit at the end where Jodie Foster goes through the wormhole. Sorry, spo- spoilers <laughs> for, for your listeners. Um, there's a bit where she says she she's sort of looking out at the universe, and she says, "Oh, you, you shouldn't have sent." I think I'm going to paraphrase. I apologise if I get this wrong. You shouldn't have sent a scientist. You should have sent a poet. And that's what I think. I think, both well, I think both art and science illuminate the world. They they are ways of framing and understanding the the world that we live in. And I think they absolutely complement one another. So I think that um, art can communicate science and uh, science can inspire art and yeah. So uh, the last sketch is what I wish Miss World competitions were like. And the final question in this year's Miss World competition is, why are you here today? Um, Well, I personally believe that this contest is about women coming together and celebrating female beauty and such as, and it should be seen as empowering, and better for our nation, and freedom of speech for our children. (laughs) Well, I'm here because my friends have always told me that I'm really pretty, and I'm doing this for my dad, who's an American taxpayer, yeah. Why am I here? I don't know, yes. I guess I personally believe that the universe was once a really dense, hot singularity. And about 13.7 plus or minus 0.2 billion years ago, a moment of rapid expansion, led that's the creation of protons, electrons, neutrons, you know, all that stuff. All over billions of years, these formed planets and stars. And about four and a half billion years ago, a particular bunch of material formed an accretion disk around a smallish star in the outer spiral arm of a galaxy came together on the force of gravity, which is one of the four forces we know of, but I'm not going to go into that now. <laughs> Sorry, ditzy. It formed a body in the habit zone of its star, allowing for liquid water with the essential formation of life as you know it, which self occurred about half a million years later. At first it was just simple combinations of cells like proteobacteria, but by a process of biological and organic evolution whereby those creatures with the physical traits that make them more able to survive and pass on those traits to their offspring, we started to see more complex, multicellular life like arthropods, reptiles, and eventually mammals. One of the mammals in the taxonomic family Hominidae developed written and spoken language as well as tool use, allowing us to create civilization as we now know it with division of labor, agriculture, technology, and so forth, which means we're fast to type 1 civilization on the Kardashians. Scale. But I guess our desire as animals to live and reproduce and see our offspring live to reproductive age themselves means that despite the advancements in medical science over the past hundred years, which have more than doubled life expectancy and rather the process of natural selection arguably obsolete, we still unconsciously seek a mate with the outward aesthetic appeal associated, rightly or wrongly, with good health, which is why beauty patterns like this still exist. And that's why I'm here. <laughs> Hi, Mom. OK, so uh, thank you very much for listening. My name's Gemma Arrowsmith. Enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: If you enjoyed Gemma's sketches, you can find many more on YouTube by searching for Gemma Arrowsmith, and you should also check out her ongoing podcast collaboration with fellow comedian and improviser Susan Harrison. It's called Hayley and Ruth, Two Stars, and it's never less than brilliant.
3: So something that, which is really key in terms of talking about the potential of science fiction, I think, is this idea of, well, of speculative fiction um, and and just tweaking something about a world and seeing what the ramifications of that would be. But I think that's something that is such a huge imaginative possibility across um, fiction in general, which is how would it be if the world had formed differently as well as what will happen when we make this or that innovation? It's what would happen if we had just evolved differently or something shifted in our genetic code that made this group or this group or this group different have different powers just thinking about why certain groups in general are marginalized and science fiction's social capacity to engage with those questions
2: yeah it's something that um people always talk about with star trek especially the next generation is these shows that are so intended to portray a different society like uh, i believe it's described as a post-scarcity society. So there is money's been done away with and food is universally available. And so there's no... It's basically removing a bunch of very core issues with society as it is now. And then saying, well, how would this advanced humanity deal with a a different set of problems brought on by new frontiers?
4: Do we think that um, science fiction and and scientific fiction finds those easy to explore because it's depoliticising equality?
2: I think that's true to some extent, but I do think that still it's very hard to to uncouple even science fiction from our political expectations today, particularly as um, the internet response from um, fans. And in some cases, I think the quotation marks around fans are quite heavy, who will immediately uh, boycott any Star Wars film for having a female protagonist uh, or say a remake of Ghostbusters, whatever its merits. And uh, I think that's something that's unfortunately true. I do think, however, that in, in general, the experience of reading science fiction does allow you that permission.
3: I agree I also think the fact that it it sort of allows a suspension of the natural biases that we all have because it's not saying imagine if this now changed necessarily it's just slightly twisting the status quo obviously this doesn't go for all science fiction but that's its potential it can and therefore it can kind of um, navigate itself around our yes but the world is like this and it can never change and instead go "Uh uh-huh put a pin in it but imagine it was like this. So actually, I think it, if, if used imaginatively or when used imaginatively and innovatively, I think it does exactly that. It does have the potential to depoliticise intensely political questions. There will always be some people who manage to then repoliticise yeah, yes, it. Yes. Um, but I think it's really interesting that it does, I think, have that potential very strongly.
2: I think I think I would almost go further and uh, say... Well, I, I would agree with you, but I'd also say that, it, on the other hand, what I find about that is that it's even more political. Because what it's saying is, if you paint a picture of a future where there's no distinction between the rights of men and women, and uh, there's concerns and problems are taken with equal severity, likewise any question of race or trans issues or anything like that, what you're saying is this is a, a better future. And you're, you're pointing the finger at a future which, whatever problems it has... Can be better in some ways i think it's it's something which i think sci- sci-fi is great at is is doing away with uh perhaps doing away with a, a petty problem we have now which is is tedious and <laughs> played out yeah. certainly that's how i feel reading a lot of my favorite stories
3: i think maybe it's that it has a capacity to be non-partisan maybe then rather than non-political mm. or apolitical it's i think you're right actually yeah of course it's political if you say hey what about this because that is inherently political i suppose but the idea that it's not saying pick a side now because Mm. these are the issues currently in play it's saying let's just examine for a second what it would be like if these issues
4: were in play differently we've talked a lot about what science fiction and scientific fiction does for us but we haven't talked about what um what science is going to lead us to moving forward So obviously we've had some some pretty heavy blows recently with regard to scientific development and scientific research, and we are set to have some more. What do we think we're going to have to do to keep moving?
2: I think the the positive thing is that, uh, speaking globally, and it it feels more and more in a nice way, especially post-Cold War, that scientific development is something that I think has been... Um, democratized and shared an awful lot so it seems very rare that unless you unless it's a question of funding that will if, if you're too poor you're not able to carry the the actualization of a scientific breakthrough through to a poorer country for example the, the information is there the knowledge is there and I think that's something about the scientific community which is is incredibly wonderful is is that sense that it's it's for the good of of the world for the good of science to, to push these learnings forward So a good example that you brought up earlier, uh, Jenny, was the Paris Agreement and uh, the President of America, if he can be called that, deciding to um, withdraw from it. And I think that's a very good example because it was essentially a futile gesture. Because for one thing, a lot of companies have already decided and have been announcing publicly that they don't care whether or not the US is part of it, they're going to participate. And some of that will be because they are already international companies that want to abide by uh, that Uh, carbon reduction commitment in order so that they can trade in other countries. But also these companies know that the way forward is polluting less. Ultimately, the ways we find forward benefit everyone. And even if you want to make a political point about uh, trying to keep the coal miners on your side, for the most part the people actually put these scientific practices into effect and run companies and factories. They'll take something that is more efficient and that is more forward thinking because they need to stay current.
3: I think in terms of looking to the future as well, and thinking about this in terms of both actual scientific research and the possibilities and a potentiality of science writing, are that we have, and I suppose we always have had, this problem that I think very frequently humans will look to what is easiest and most comfortable for them And obviously we are in a current situation and this doesn't look to change anytime soon that really tough decisions need to be made about the way we consume, the way we live our lives, the way that we vote, the way that um, countries commit to and navigate this the the future of science and the future of dealing with um, big problems that science needs to deal with. And I think that that sort of instinct humans have to go, yes, yes, I think that's important, but then carrying on living their lives the way they always have, is where science proper and science writing are going to marry. I think because the job, well, a job of science writers is to do that forward thinking, to do that imaginative work, to do that, yes, what if, and I'm going to paint a picture for you, for us, for readers, And I think we're entering a period of huge uncertainty. We are in a period of huge uncertainty when it comes to our world, our environment and things like that. But I also think that from a a fiction point of view, we are entering a period of opportunity for writers and creators to help us shape our own approach to that and to help us shape how we are going to deal with it.
2: So, science fiction continues to push us forward, and for the most part, we welcome it, though some would rather hold both science and fiction back. But as sci fi becomes a more accessible and popular medium, it seems that hand in hand, scientific rigour and imagination become more widespread. During a deeply unstrong, unstable, and ungreat time in Western politics, we can at least rely on science and science fiction to provide us with cautionary tales and dreams of a brighter future. Thanks so much to all of our interviewees and contributors for this month. If you've been enjoying Story Etc. so far, then please do subscribe, if you haven't already, and we implore you, in the name of science, recommend us to a friend and please give us a nice review on iTunes. You'd be helping us out enormously. If you'd like to recommend us or offer feedback on Twitter, you can find us at Story Etc. Pod. Even more importantly, if you have a story you'd like to have read, a lead on an interesting interview subject, or if you're an actor who'd like to lend your voice to one of our productions, don't hesitate to email us at storyetcetrapod at gmail.com. We want to hear your stories, too. If you'd like any more information on any of the features you've just heard, you can find full episode notes on our website at storyetcetrapod.com. Goodbye from all of us, and we hope you'll stay tuned for our next episode, Interaction.
3: Story Etc, Episode 4, Science, was produced and presented by Tom Crowley, Jenny Redmond and Eleanor Rushton. The supervising editor was Odin Ornhill Marson, who also composed the music. Our guests this month were Olivia Smith, Adam Roberts and Gemma Arrowsmith. Story Etc. is a production of Audio Scribble and Crowley & Co. Thanks for listening.